0: I'm Interfaith Alliance President, Reverend Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch in New York City.
1: You know, I often think about this as as a way of the country really becoming unmoored, psychologically Mm. unmoored.
0: Understanding the forces moving our society and culture is essential before trying to create needed change. And this week, we've got expert takes on two important aspects of America 2023. We'll take a dive into some of the disturbing findings of the latest Public Religion Research Institute American Values Survey.
2: Reagan's biggest success was mainstreaming this evangelical vision to the larger public. Now, when he said shining city on a hill, that meant one thing to religious conservatives. To many secular people, it was a harmless phrase. And later, the
0: author of a riveting book, that examines how the blessing of the religious right gave one president a second term, writing the American dream, how the media mainstreamed Reagan's evangelical vision. We are growing the State of Belief, building on our 17-year history by partnering with Religion News Service. And as part of the RNS family of podcasts, there's a Next Generation, the State of Belief podcast I wanna make sure you're subscribed to. Please visit stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. It would really help us to have you subscribe and to tell people you're close to about the conversations you are hearing. The State of Belief is made possible in great part by the generous support of our listeners. If you've made a donation, thank you for helping get these conversations heard by more people who need them. If you haven't pitched in yet, information on how you can help keep this show on the air is available at stateofbelief.com and you can find out more about the work of Interfaith Alliance and join us at interfaithalliance.org. Dr. Robert P. Jones is president and founder of the Public Religion Research Institute and author of the New York Times best selling book, The Hidden Roots of White Supremacy and the Path to a Shared American Future, his third. PRRI is always coming out with invaluable findings on who we are and what we believe as Americans. The 2023 American Values Survey is out, and there's a lot in here to discuss. And so, Robbie, welcome back to The State of Belief. Thanks, Paul. I'm glad to be here. Listen, first of all, let me start by saying congratulations on the success of The Hidden Roots of White Supremacy and the Path to Shared American Future. The, the reviews have been amazing. This is a book that obviously people were hungry for. And so congratulations on the success. New York Times bestselling. Really great. I hope our listeners have had a chance to go out and get it and learn about the great research that Robbie has done.
1: Oh, thanks, Paul. It's been an amazing ride. Um, It it seems to struck a nerve um, this fall, so it's it's been great.
0: Yeah. Well, speaking of striking nerves, the American Values Survey. Tell us first, like what that is. Uh, how often mm-hmm. it happens and what kind of research goes into it. So we know how the, the
1: information that we're gathering, wh- where it comes from. What is the American value yeah. survey? So the American value survey is uh, PRRI's flagship survey. Um, so we do it every fall. Um, this is our 14th annual survey. So we've been doing it for 14 years and we conduct it every year in partnership with the Brookings Institution um, uh, in Washington, D.C. And our partners there at Brookings, we have the same two kind of senior uh, fellows at, at Brookings of E.J. Dion Jr., uh, who's also a columnist at the Washington Post, author extraordinaire, and Bill Galston, who's a columnist at the Wall Street Journal, uh, but both are senior fellows at, at Brookings uh, in the governance studies program. They have been our long-term, it's the longest uh, uh, partnership actually that we've had, um, at at, at PRI, which has been there really since the beginning, so so each fall we survey um, you know well over 2,500 Americans, um, and we ask essentially it it it's really one that's not focused on a single subject, but it is trying to get at what is really happening at this intersection of religion, culture, and politics. So it covers a lot of ground in terms of issues. But we're also trying to get, I think, underneath the kind of what Americans believe to kind of what's driving them. Why do they believe what they believe? Um, And and also particularly what role is religion and politics playing uh, in those beliefs? Yeah. Well, you know, as someone
0: who's like been along the ride with you uh, in some of these processes, I know you're always kind of looking for those statistics that stand out that make you kind of sit up straight and say, oh, yeah, yeah. okay, that's a, that's surprising. What are some of the headlines that came out of this uh, survey? Yeah,
1: you know, it, it is kind of a sifting process, you know, so we ask, you know, well over 50 questions. Um, we've got hundreds of ways we could slice the data demographically, by religion, by gender, education, race, ethnicity, you know, uh, party. and And so we're kind of looking for the patterns that tell a story about where we are um, uh, in the country. And and there were a few that really stood out this year. One of them is that everybody's concerned about the future of democracy. Um, So I think that's kind of one headline. Three quarters of the country say that the future of American democracy is at stake in the 2024 presidential election. So It's one of the few places, in fact, where we find bipartisan agreement on the ground. So uh, it's 84 percent of Democrats, uh, but it's also 77 percent of Republicans uh, who believe the future of democracy is at stake uh, in the 2024 election. Uh, The other thing in terms of just general mood, I guess, of the country is it's pretty pessimistic um, out there, Um, you know, that that. Ah, uh, people believe the country's kind of gotten off track. Um, now there are obviously very different reasons people uh, believe uh, the country's off track, but it, but by and large, it's fairly pessimistic. We had we have a slim majority of Americans who say America's best days are now behind us. Fifty-two percent of the country says that, uh, but but there's a huge uh, partisan gap on this question. Thirty more than thirty points. Uh, it's primarily Republicans, um, and you know we do sometimes see this. You know, if you're a Republican and there's a Democrat in the White House, we do sometimes see this partisan effect where Republicans are more gloomy if there's a Democrat in the White House. But it's it's two thirds of Republicans saying America's best day are behind us. Thirty five percent of Democrats uh, saying America's best days are behind us. But in general, even even when Trump was in the White House, I think it was largely because Trump was kind of, you know, the American carnage president. Um, you know, he would uh-huh. give speeches talking about how uh, awful uh, things were in America, even while he was in charge.
0: <laughs> I think that was his inaugural speech was on American carnage. It was like, oh yeah. okay, that's pretty good. So there has been All right.
1: yeah, there's more doom and gloom among Republicans, I think, as a whole. Uh but I think it's largely because the country out, on many things are is just trending in a in a direction uh that that it, the the culture is moving in uh in a direction that's not in lockstep, right? So there's, you know, uh two thirds of the country supports uh marriage equality. Uh, today. Uh, two-thirds of the country supports abortion rights uh, today, right? And so I think that's also uh, kind of lending to uh, the kind of doom and gloom among Republicans. It's not just partisanship, but this sense that the country is kind of moving away. You know, a quarter of the country is uh, religiously unaffiliated today. Among young people, it's four in 10, uh, right? And the, and the we're no longer a white Christian country, as you and I have talked about before, but just to put the number out there again, um, Today, the country is only 42 percent white and Christian. If you add all of the white Christians up, right, Protestant, Catholic, non-denominational, you still only get to 42 percent. And just 20 years ago, that number was 54. Um, So they're Uh sensing that, you know, that shift in the country as well. Right, right. One of the ones that, you know, at least was
0: (laughs) the headline for me was um, the support for violence, and political violence. I mean, can you talk a little bit about that? That was uh, a, a kind of a, a terrifying um number and what seems to be a shift um that uh we've seen. Talk about that statistic.
1: Yeah, that's right. Um you know, so the numbers we were talking about before, I think were kind of the bigger context and kind of mood in the country, but um you know, the 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 finding that we ended up really putting in in the spotlight had to do with um, political violence. And we've been asking a question really since the insurrection. We've been asking about um, whether uh, people believe uh, that we may have to resort to violence to save the country. So our our question read, the full question wording is an agree or disagree question. We've asked this question eight times uh, since March of 2021. uh, And it reads like this, because things have gotten so far off track, True American patriots may have to resort to violence in order to save the country. When we first asked this question, um, uh, you know uh, again, you know two years ago, a little more than two years ago, it was fifteen percent of Americans one five uh, who uh, agreed uh, with that statement. Uh, again, we've asked this question eight times. This is the first time uh, that the number has exceeded ever twenty percent. Uh, and we asked this question in our most recent survey is twenty three percent of the country uh, that now says uh, they can, you know, things may have gotten so far off track True American patriots may have to resort to violence in order to save the country. Um, There is also, um, uh, it has increased across the board, um, uh, really most demographic groups, but it is most pronounced on the right. Uh, So Mm -hmm. among Republicans, it is now one in three Republicans, 33 percent, uh, who say uh, true American patriots may have to resort to violence to save the country? It's 13% of Democrats. So it's about two and a half times the number of Republicans uh, compared to the number of Democrats that say this. And then one other thing we we did is, in addition to kind of looking at the kind of ideological and partisan spread on the numbers, is to try to understand what attitudes were connected, um, you know, to this. Uh, to these ideas so that you can better understand like what's driving people to say we may have to resort to violence uh, to save the country once you see that it becomes pretty clear um that the real support for this is really on the on America's political right and religious right uh, uh today so I'll just give you kind of a few uh, of the of the um the attitudinal shifts or attitudinal um pieces that make you much more likely uh, to say uh, we you may have to resort to violence. So um, if, for example, uh, uh, you believe that the 2020 election was stolen uh, from Donald Trump, that, in fact, is the single highest um, uh, ad- our attitude that, that makes for the single highest support for political violence. If you believe the 2020 election was stolen from Donald Trump, 46 percent of that group, uh, nearly half of that group, says that we may have to resort to violence in order to save the country, which immediately, of course, brings back those images uh, from January uh, six. Uh, if you just have a favorable view uh, of Donald Trump, 4 in 10 of that group uh, says we may have to resort to violence. Uh, there are three other attitudes that are basically 4 in 10. If you held these attitudes, 4 in 10 of that group uh, says you may have to resort to violence to save the country. Here are the three. Uh, immigrants are invading our country and misplacing our cultural and ethnic background. God intended America to be a more uh, a new promised land for European Christians and society as a whole has become too soft and feminine. Each of those, if you agree with each of those statements, four in 10 of each of those groups, so we may have to resort to violence. And then there's, there's one more that's still above average. Um, and that is the, if you agree that the killings of, of black Americans by police are uh, isolated incidents rather than part of a pattern of how police treat African-Americans Uh, three in 10 of that group is uh, likely to say say that true American patriots may have to resort to violence. So to distill all that down, um, here are the things that uh, uh, contribute to and are positively correlated with uh, a willingness to kind of resort to political violence. A belief in the big lie, favorable views of Trump, belief in the so-called great replacement theory, uh, Christian nationalism, uh, patriarchy, and denials of systemic racism, like that's basically the formula uh, for right. uh, those who are um, more more willing to support political violence today. Yeah,
0: I mean, I think that the the terrifying thing here, you know, as is, is you're well aware of, and I think our listeners are are very well aware of, is that um, the correlation between violence and Christian nationalism, uh, you know, unfortunately, is like yeah. you, know, it, it, you know, this is, and you know, I I'm I'm still kind of, you know. There's some of those interviews that some interviews that I do. They're like, oh, okay, that that's going to sit with me. And and talking to um, Jeff Charlotte about the the you know the the great undertow and sl- scenes from a slow civil war and about you know mentioning how many guns were in churches and and the kind of rise in the militarization of kind of Christian. Um, Christian militia. And uh, it, it is like, yeah. it's, it is, I have to say, this is like a very terrifying, sobering um, statistic, and I'm not sure exactly what we can do about it. Um, but Well,
1: yeah, I think you're right that we should sit with this one uh, for a bit and not gloss over it. I, th- I think it's easy to, um, you know, hear a statement like, know christian nationalism or this core belief in christian nationalism that god intended america to be a kind of promised land for european christians right that's what the question says so it's whiteness you know embedded Uh in in the in the in in the question um you know it's an attitude by the way that a majority of republicans affirm that statement a majority of white evangelicals affirm uh that statement and it sounds i think it's sometimes you just hear it um in the abstract um, it it sounds maybe just a little you know okay it's dated it's fringe or something like that but again this view has captured one of our two political parties um, and 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 a whole group of mainstream white Christians in the country now has has become kind of centered around this idea and uh, it's not just you know a metaphor right uh, you know that right. kind of the country as a Christian nation is not just some abstract thing. Uh, and if you think about it, and I wrote about this, you know, in the hidden roots of white supremacy. But if you if you if you take that seriously, right, and and that this is a God ordained end, uh, and and this is the way that the country was designed by God to be, then of course, if you if you really believe that, uh, it does open the door to protecting that vision of the country by any means necessary. Right, right, right. Um, one of the other
0: statistics is about like how people are getting their information. Uh, which um, is very uh, disconcerting. Uh, the I just, you know, QAnon is to me, like, how is this a thing? But it is really a thing. And so, like, it, talk to me about how you, you do ask about QAnon in this um, survey. What what role is QAnon playing in our body politic?
1: Yeah, you know, again, this is another thing you think of as being, like, really fringe um but you know it it is something that uh as odd as it is uh you know that it, it is capturing again a, a non uh a negligible number of uh, members of the country i think it is a, a you know i often think about this as, as a way of the country really becoming unmoored um you know psychologically mm. un, unmoored uh in 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 many ways and, and i think um you know when We have these demographic shifts we've been talking about, and when the country is shifting away from something, I think that many white Christians were so sure it was that is a white Christian country and would always be this thing, and the country is shifting uh, out from underneath them. I I think it does lend itself, you know, it creates a kind of psychological space for these wild theories, anything to explain, um, you know, what's going on. And so, you know, we we ended up uh, spending way too much time. Uh, on QAnon message boards and stuff just to kind of get the vibe and reading articles about it. Um, uh, But we ended up coming up with a question to try to capture the core of it. And again, this is a question I never thought I'd really write as a a social scientist, but here's the question uh, that we ask people. Do they agree or disagree? Uh, The government, media, and financial worlds in the U.S. are controlled by a group of Satan-worshipping pedophiles who run a global child sex trafficking operation?" That's the question. We asked. This, started asking this after the insurrection in the last election cycle. Um, and we asked that question, plus a couple of others. One is the political violence question as part of this battery that we classify people as QAnon believers or rejectors. Um, and then the other question we have is a kind of apocalyptic uh, thing that QAnon uh, has wrapped up in it that is this idea that uh, there's a storm coming soon that's going to wipe away the current leaders and sweep in um you know this kind of revolution of of new uh leaders. So this is kind of this cocktail of Satan worshiping pedophiles and political violence and uh, kind of apocalypticism that that is this you know mix this QAnon. But we ask all that and in in two years ago it was 14% of the country that agreed uh with all three of those statements. Um believe it or not uh, that number's up to 23 uh percent uh today that that believes in and all that's a quarter of the country um that sort of affirms uh this sentiment and you know again it's it's you can see it much more operative on the right Republicans are twice as likely uh as Democrats to affirm uh those statements uh and Democrats are three times as likely to reject um all three of those statements Um, but you know it's it's nearly a third of Republicans um who uh affirm uh these statements but I do think it, it is a kind of just sign you know, that, uh, you know, the country's not well. Hmm. I mean,
0: unmoored is a very, like, vivid way to to put it. Thank you for that. Um, What do you think this survey means for the election in 2024? Like, it's not great news that people are very pessimistic, unless you can figure out a way to speak directly into that. But what are some other things that came up in the survey that you think are going to be really important in 2024?
1: Yeah, Well, you know, there's very little common ground between Republicans and Democrats. Now, I know that doesn't come as a great surprise. You know, we actually asked a a broad battery of uh, issues, and we had 20 issues on the survey, and we asked people to tell us whether they were critical issues or not uh, uh, in the survey, and there was actually only one thing that Republicans and Democrats agreed on, and that was um, Kind of economic pain that the increasing cost of housing and everyday expenses were a challenge. And people were worried about that. So that, you know, that one thing holds the country together. But then you do see kind of this very different um, set of priorities for Democrats and Republicans um, that are not just economic, they're about kind of cultural things. So, you know, if you look at the top issues for Democrats, they're pretty diverse, actually. But, you know, I'll just list them off. These are the things that had um, like half or more of Democrats said were critical issues to the country. And you kind of get a feel for it. Climate change, access to guns and gun safety, health care, health of our democracy, the growing gap between the rich and the poor, mental health uh, and abortion. Uh, By the way, half of uh, uh, Democrats say abortion is a critical issue. Uh, So there's a pretty broad set of things here. There were many fewer issues that Republicans said were critical issue. And you'll hear a very different Um, kind of salience, if you listen to these, right? So there's only five of them. The things that uh, Republicans say are critical. What children learn in public school, crime, Mm -hmm. immigration, human trafficking. That's it. Right. So if you kind of get the feel of that, that's all about kind of fear, protection, um, danger, right, Is, is what all of those things kind of have in mind. So our kids are getting taught dangerous things in school. Uh, we're going to get assaulted by a criminal um, immigrants are pouring over the border. Um, children are being trafficked. You know, like it, right. it's all this kind of like uh, world is falling apart and the world's a dangerous place. Um, kind of, and we and hunkering. You know, we hunker down and we fight for you know this other vision of America is is right there. Even in a, a mundane question like which issues are more important uh, to you. Mm-hmm. So I think to your bigger question, looking in twenty twenty four. You know, I think we're just in for a pretty continued bumpy ride. Um, and and I I'm I'm quite worried um about you know the violence um, that we may see at the polls, uh, even, you know, we saw them after the ele- we saw the violence kind of breaking out after the election. Um, but given these numbers and the, the fact that again, you know, a majority of one or two political parties um is saying, Yeah, I I could imagine that might be justified, that political violence might be justified. Uh, because the country's gotten so far off track, um, you know, it makes me pretty worried um, uh, about what may may happen between, you know, now and this time next year. I wonder for those people who said political violence may be
0: justified. Do they also say um, I'm worried about American democracy because if you're justifying yeah. political violence, you know, you can't also say I'm worried about American democracy because actually you're, you know, you are the biggest threat to American democracy. Uh, but, I, you know, my guess is, is that they're worried about American democracy kind of functioning as a tool for getting their way. Um, and if it doesn't work that way, you know, they're willing to. Yeah. Um, Turn to violence. But you know, it is an interesting, you know, in addition to the economic question, the that the that everyone's concerned with American democracy. But what we mean by that concern may be very different.
1: No, that's exactly right. It's a really important point. Um, you know, and we actually had uh, one question to kind of get at this is we we asked a question about um whether people would perceive democracy to be broken if either Trump or Biden won. Uh, the election and here you see you know a really different uh view like so for democrats uh 72 percent say if trump wins the election it it means that democracy is broken and we may need a new form of government um only uh It's interesting though like 18 percent of democrats say that if joe biden wins the 24 24 election uh democracy is broken uh but among republicans uh you know two-thirds of Republicans, uh, 64% of them, say if Joe Biden wins uh, the 2024 election, democracy is broken. And again, you know, uh, it's nearly eight and 10 Republicans who say they're very worried about uh, democracy. So, I, you know, it, it. It. what we see is that, particularly um, you know, among partisans, there's this view, I think, that um, uh, even though there's no kind of equivalency here, it's very clear that, um, you know, we can say this without even being partisan. I mean, the evidence on the ground Uh, is that sort of that MAGA movement rooted in the Republican Party is very clearly uh, the threat uh, to democracy. It is the thing that tried to overturn a free and fair election. I mean, there's just clear evidence about that. And yet that's not the way Republicans see it.
0: Mm. So you wrote in your last book um, about a shared American future. So (laughs) where do you see that? uh you know we I, I i one of the great things about the book the hidden roots of white supremacy and a path to a shared american future was that not only did you talk about just this the this horrible expressions of white supremacy in with uh with uh native americans and and um and black americans but also that there was effort in communities to figure out a way forward together acknowledging yeah. that and moving forward and yet when I hear this um, a, uh, AVS for short, uh, the American Values Survey, it's very hard in some ways to see a way forward together.
1: I think that's right. I mean, I think we're in a troubling place, a dangerous place um, for American democracy. Um, but, you know, it's important to remember that like what, when you just give those partisan numbers, you know, you do see two political parties and partisans really entrenched. But when you look at, you know, a number of other things, it the country is not really uh on issues and, and on a lot of important things in a 50-50 split situation. Now we're at a partisan split uh, that makes it look like that. But you know, kind of go back to this couple numbers I gave at the beginning. Um, you know, two-thirds of the country today, it's two to one uh supports marriage equality uh for gay and lesbian couples. You know, it's two to one in the country that supports basic abortion rights that say abortion should be legal in all or most cases. Um, You know, it's two to one who uh, Americans who want to see a comprehensive immigration uh, reform uh, package that would make a path to citizenship for uh, immigrants who are in the country illegally. So on so many of our most vexing issues, um, we're actually in a two to one situation, right? right? The challenge is, that that 30%, that 33% that's on the other side, um, uh, you know, has captured one of the two political parties. Uh, And so it has a kind of disproportionate leverage and power. That's true uh, because of gerrymandering uh, at the local level, um, you know, uh, we're diluting minority votes at at the state level. Um, All of that stuff kind of adds up to the Electoral College, um, I think, is another place where the, kind of uh, this vote of that 30 percent of Americans, um, you know, uh, uh, gets amplified uh, in, in ways mm-hmm. that that make it look like. So, yes, we're deeply divided and, and the opinions are very strong. But on on even a kind of yeah, immigration, abortion, uh, LGBTQ rights, like those things that, that you would say are the most divisive issues in the country. It's not a 50-50 split at all. It's, it's yeah. more like a two to one split. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think it's it's such a good point, And it's so important to remember, like, you know, I remember we did a survey back uh, a few years ago about like, you know, the majority of Americans really actually want to be, live in a religiously diverse country. Yeah. You know, they, yeah. they celebrate that. Um, and uh, the majority of Americans are, you know, are glad that we live in a racially diverse country and want more equity, you know, and and uh, and justice around uh, civil rights issues. And so, it is really important to remember these things when a when a survey like this comes out. It's like, oh my God, there's just no future together. But actually, there is a future together. And people, you know, I mean, I'll just use the marriage equality, you know, issue. It, that people can change their minds. And we have to remember that people can change their minds. They can, yeah. they can, people who were dead fast against it today are, are absolutely supporting it. And so we have to remember that, you know, people out there who um, right now feel absolutely oppositional, you know, it is always important to invite an opportunity to imagine a different future for the country and for, for our community. So I really appreciate you reminding us of that. Dr. Robert P. Jones is president and founder of the Public Religion Research Institute and author of three influential books, The End of White Christian America, White Too Long, The Legacy of White Supremacy in American Christianity, and his latest, a New York Times bestseller titled The Hidden Roots of White Supremacy and the Path to a Shared American Future. Robbie, thank you so much for being with us on The State of Belief. Uh, Thanks, Paul. Always glad to be here. Up next, Diane Winston. Her latest book is titled Writing the American Dream, How the Media Mainstreamed Reagan's Evangelical Vision. If you miss any part of today's program, you can hear full episodes of The State of Belief anytime on our website at stateofbelief.com. And make sure you subscribe to The Next Generation Podcast at stateofbelief.com slash newpodcast. That's stateofbelief.com slash newpodcast. You're listening to State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet. My next guest is both a scholar and a practitioner. Having spent a decade as a working journalist, Diane Winston is now Associate Professor of Journalism and the Knight Chair on Media and Religion at the University of Southern California. With a PhD from Princeton University in Religion and a master's degree from Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism and Harvard Divinity School, Diane has the credentials to unravel a story as complex as the one this book examines, and then some. The book is Writing the American Dream, How the Media Mainstreamed Reagan's Evangelical Vision. Diane Winston, welcome to The State of Belief. Hi,
2: Paul. Thank you for having me today.
0: I want to make sure that people hear it. When I say writing the American dream, it's an R. It could be a W-R, but in this case, it's an R. So if you're looking for it on Amazon or wherever, or your local bookstore, even better, That it starts with an R, writing the American dream, how the media mainstreamed Reagan's evangelical vision. I will tell you that if you read this book, you will be smarter. Like, it's that simple. <laughs> like, it is such an incredibly researched, beautifully written, understandable, yet complex issues, complex concepts. And so I just really, really appreciate it. Now, what was the spark for this book? Because there had to be something where you just said, aha, like this is a connection that no one has made. And truly for me, as someone who's been around the block a while, I had never made this connection. You made a connection. What, what was the spark that that made you say, I have to write this book?
2: When Obama was elected in 2008, it occurred to me that we were on the brink of a large change in our country's vision. I thought that Obama was bringing in a new day, a new era, where there would be less individualism, less focus on the market, um, a more open and loving political community. And uh, because he often used the language of religion in his speeches, and because the media had been so um, central, so instrumental in bringing his message to the people, I began thinking that this would be a time to look at how religion and media affect how we think about ourselves as individuals and as citizens of the United States. Now, obviously that didn't happen. I wrote the book slowly because as a professor, I'm teaching, I'm doing committees. I know people think we sit around and eat bonbons, but most of the time during the school year, I'm pretty hard at work. So in 2016, when Trump was elected, I realized not only had our American vision not changed for the better, it was about to change, in my opinion, for the worse. Mm -hmm. And so the book took on a totally different sense of urgency and importance as I wrote it because I wanted to figure out how Reagan, who I say was the last president to give us a new American vision, how Reagan could possibly lead to Trump. Mm.
0: One of the phrases that you came up with, which I had never heard before, is religious imaginary, which you describe as a religious imaginary expresses a commonsensical Collective Understanding of What Matters and Why. Can you talk a little bit more about a religious imaginary and what what that really means and why it's so central to the thesis of this book uh, and understanding really some of what has driven America over the last, geez, almost 40 years?
2: Right. A religious imaginary is a constellation of ideas and images that reflect metaphysical truths, that reflect ethical norms, moral concerns, that are usually not um, verbalized or articulated. It's more a sense of who it's it's more a sense of understanding something in your gut. So, for example, if I say America is a shining city on a hill, that resonates with people because they've heard this phrase and in their minds, they're thinking we're a shining city on a hill. God blessed us. We have God's blessings. We're going to live out those blessings in the world. So what I suggest is there's one large religious imaginary that kind of based on the Puritan ideas that God blesses America, and so we're all blessed. But there also are different religious imaginaries that we all live with. So Martin Luther King's beloved community is a religious imaginary that has kept the Black community together And the golden land was a religious imaginary of Jews who came here in the early 20th century. Robert Bella talks about civil religion, which is another kind of imaginary that speaks to secular people. Mm. So there are many religious imaginaries, but what I suggest is most Americans also understand and respond to this larger idea of the shining city on a hill. Mm. American exceptionalism.
0: Well, and, you know, you write that, you know, I'm going to be quoting you at you uh, quite a bit. I hope that's okay. (laughs) (laughs) But it's so good. The Reaganite religious imaginary rested on two convictions that were part of a conservative Protestant worldview. America, one, America is an exceptional country because it is God's chosen nation. And God wants Americans to be free. Those two things. I mean, that's yeah. very powerful. It's clear. It's understandable. For you, that was like Reagan's religious imaginary that he was right. offering to the people. And I, I just was like, oh, that's so clear, and like it's so easy to respond to, which I think was part of the the attraction. It did, say
2: more about that. Reagan had the gift of taking complex ideas and boiling them down into phrases and words that people could understand. So the shining city on a hill. Actually, it's not a shining city on a hill. In the actual sermon, it's a city on a hill. And it meant that America would be judged by the world as to whether or not it kept its promise to be faithful to God. Mm -hmm. It wasn't a, you know, benediction of our holiness. It was almost the opposite. It was challenging Mm us. Reagan added the word shining and it changed from this idea that we are being judged by our fellow humans to this idea that we are blessed and above our fellow humans Mm. and that one little word made such a difference and it was so powerful and that's the kind of gift Reagan had he was able to make a complex idea available to the larger public
0: right right and one of the, the the central thesis of this book um In addition to identifying that and and the the myriad of ways that Reagan exercised this uh, during his uh, presidency and the run up to his presidency, um, uh, was the role that media played in helping this become mainstreamed so that it became almost obvious that right. these things were true and that these things could be understood and that, you know, and that one person had that mouthpiece. And, and talk to me about that, because you are a professional around media studies. I mean, not, you know, or, you know, media writ large and and someone who spent a lifetime in some ways in journalism. And yet you write this book that's really in some ways an indictment of journalism in that moment. Um, becoming a mouthpiece almost for this religious imaginary that really led to the rise of Reagan and the way we understand Reagan still. I mean, Reagan has become mythologized as this like amazing moment. And, you know, Republicans look back, oh, a Reagan Republican, whatever that means. And so but talk to me about your understanding of the role that media played in sharing this religious imaginary um, of, you know, God as an exceptional country because it is God's chosen nation and that, you
2: know, God
0: wants Americans to be free.
2: Reagan's biggest success or one of his biggest successes was mainstreaming this evangelical vision to the larger public. Now, when he said shining city on a hill, that meant one thing, to religious conservatives. To many secular people, it was a harmless phrase. And in that way, the media helped uh, circulate the message. He did this all the time. So I talk about the, um, the war, well, to start with the evil empire speech that he gave to the National Association of Evangelicals in March of 1983, where he called the Soviet Union an evil empire. Reagan felt communism was an existential evil because it opposed the basic freedoms that America treasured, freedom and democracy, free markets, and religious freedom. And so it was more than this is our political enemy. It is, this is Satan threatening our Our life and our destiny. Hmm. And when he said the, when he used those terms, many reporters backed away from it, because as you know, Paul, many journalists don't know what to do with religion. You know, Mm -hmm. either they stay away from it, or they, you know, lampoon it, or they sensationalize it. But usually they don't sensitively try to unpack it. Even though reporters didn't pay much attention to this evil empire idea, pundits picked it up and they talked about the evil empire and they talked about how crazy it was. And even in talking about how crazy it is, they still mainstream the idea because even if media doesn't tell us what to think, it tells us what to think about Right. And so even if you and I do not believe in an evil empire, if we keep reading about it, it normalizes oh, it. I, I remember that moment. I remember I was young. I mean, I
0: don't even know how. I mean, I was probably I was in my teens still. And I, that phrase still rings in my right. mind. The evil empire. We heard about it over and over and over again. And you do such an amazing job in that moment in the book because you outline the reporters heard one thing. It was he gave that speech to an evangelical audience. They heard a whole other thing that was going on underneath it. And so right. there was all sorts of different things going on in different levels. And the context mattered so much because, as you point out in this great book, Writing the American Dream, How the Media Mainstreamed Reagan's Evangelical Vision, you write about this was done in the context of the incredibly popular freeze movement, the freezing of nuclear weapons. And so when he was doing this, it wasn't just like I'm just going to make a speech. He was really trying to kneecap the freeze movement, which was incredibly popular with all people, including religious people, and was often driven by religious people. Um, And it was a moment when he actually was able to neutralize the freeze movement, in some ways, and and continues spending so much money on nuclear weapons, and and it became like this is an existential battle, and for many it was a spiritual battle, and that's exactly. what they heard, and that's exactly. what that's what matters, and that's just incredibly important history to remember, and for those of us who lived in that time, that phrase still uh, rings out. Um, as something that was a moment in in American um, kind of, I think it is in religious imaginary in like our understanding, like we are up against this and the and the idea of empire, like Satan's empire. You know, there's lots of ways that that resonates in an imaginary, as you can as as you so beautifully put out.
2: My favorite example of this is in the October 16th issue of the New Yorker. There's an interview with Jake Sullivan, who's head of the NSA. Sullivan is obviously a Democrat, he's a Biden appointee. And in the interview, he's asked why he's been so strong on supporting the war in Ukraine, why he why he thinks it's central. And he says, I grew up in the eighties. I grew up with Rocky and Rambo, believing there's good and bad in the world. And Ukraine is a fight for the good. I don't think Sullivan knows he was channeling Reagan i obviously they're from two political parties that are very different. And yet this is what Reagan was about. And this is what I mean by mainstreaming a religious imaginary right, because it does right. carry down to today.
0: Right. And and the other thing that it's really important to remember in that time is and certainly I remember this very clearly, that there were just the, the idea of the the power of the newspaper. The power of the three media, you know, main TV stations, ABC, NBC, CBS. The fact that I can list them now you would you could spend the entire podcast just naming the different, you know, cable news channels out there. You know, there was a way that people could completely frame um, what was important, as you said, what people should be thinking about. And they had so much power about like what to cover, how to cover it, where to put it on the you know the priority list, where it fell on the paper. You know, uh, above the fold is still something we said when I, you know, in my whole history was in the digital journalism, we still said above the fold when we meant something was important. Right. Um, and so the, the idea of journalists at that time, especially having so much power to do something, you mentioned that a lot of this wasn't done certainly intentionally, it was just done because... In some ways, Reagan was such a good communicator that they were, they just followed his lead. Is that right? Or did you tell me, nuance yes. that a little bit. That wasn't exactly it, but.
2: I, it was, a, it was several things. It was partly a reaction to the crusading journalism of the 1970s uh-huh. when a lot of newspapers were taking down big corporations. It was partly about, the sort of news fatigue because there had been so much bad news throughout the 70s. It was partly about the impact of USA Today, you know, light, bright, colorful. All these changes in in the news business made reporters softer on Reagan than they had been on either Jimmy Carter or Gerald Ford or Richard Nixon. It made reporters more... Um, open to this idea of this kindly Hollywood, former Hollywood actor, you know, maybe we take him seriously, maybe we give him a pass. So the news industry was at a point where Reagan's message was picked up and circulated without that much critical attention. But it also reflected Reagan's ability to shape narratives in the way he wanted So the evil empire speech in March resonates in October when there's a communist coup in Grenada. And even though Grenada is a very tiny little nation in the Caribbean, Reagan decides it's time to go in there and drive out the communists. And he framed this invasion of a tiny (laughs) Caribbean nation as a fight against communism Mm. and, and. The beauty of it was that when American forces went in, he banned the press from following them. It was the first time in since the mid 19th century that the press was not allowed to go and cover the war. That was done intentionally because a lot of people in, in the administration believed that reporters had lost the war in Vietnam. And mm. the administration wanted to control the story, of how we crushed communism in Grenada. And they did that by putting out stories about large supplies of weapons and thousands of soldiers and terrible fighting. And that circulated in the media for several days before actual reporters went in and wrote stories that belied all the previous reporting. There were no great caches of of military weapons. There were not thousands of soldiers. This was a tiny little nation. Yet, because Reagan's story was out there, because it fed the imaginary, and because it restored American sense of greatness and strength and spreading democracy, a feeling that had been shattered by our defeat in Vietnam, it resonated. So Reagan yeah. was able to control the narrative not only by being very smart about what he said, but also by controlling the press, which is yeah. a great example.
0: Yeah. Well, the other the other example that just really resonated with me was um, the when when AIDS became, you know, uh, prevalent um, and the framing and basically the you know, maybe I'm you can explain to he kind of outsource in a way yeah, that's a great mouth, word for it <laughs> his mouthpiece yeah. to Jerry Falwell yeah. and allowed Jerry Falwell to frame what AIDS was for the White House. And which was you know, as someone who was, you know, coming out as gay during that time, how devastating all of this was. Um, you know this 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 framing of this as a gay plague, which allowed you know a certain kind of reaction, and whether or not it was important enough to deal with. But his, you know, Reagan's inaction on that is still something that if if you talk to people of my age, we we still can't forgive him for what how, how that right. was, and and we can't forgive Jerry Falwell for the way it was framed and that it was God's punishment. This is like these were all things that, and and when we talk about religious imaginary, I mean. There were many, of course, there were many religious leaders who were just like outraged by this because they were actually caring for people who were dying. And they were like trying to, you know, you mentioned uh, William Sloan Coffin who was saying this is not God's punishment. This is a disease. Um, But it was out there. And even gay men were starting to think, okay, this is what happened to me. Right. And it was that's how powerful this stuff is. And so right. I mean, talk talk a little bit about like the role of the major evangelical leaders, Jerry Fowell, Pat Robertson, others who really were playing, um, you know, kind of uh feeding this stuff and framing in some ways religion for America. Um like right. what is the religious voice of America? Well, there it is. It's Pat Robertson, it's Jerry Fowell, we have them.
2: Yes, and exactly, and that was um, a confluence of the televangelists' media savvy, and the media's obtuseness. <laughs> their their refusal to take religion seriously drove them to quote folks who were waving good quote <laughs> and who had very extremist views. As you say, Falwell became the surrogate for Reagan. Reagan was told by his advisors, don't say anything about AIDS, you're gonna lose people, whatever you say. And so he kept quiet for a long time. And because Americans knew that he was um, close to people like Falwell because they often appeared together and Falwell claimed credit for Reagan's victory, um, the media began turning to Falwell for quotes from religious leaders and they began framing AIDS stories in Falwell's terms. So what really knocked me out was a story that was in Newsweek that summer of 83, that basically was written to explain to the public who gays were and what this was about. I think Newsweek intended it to be a positive or at least a neutral story. And yet, the subheads were all Falwellian, you know, Mm. punishment, discipline, you know, payback, things like that. So, even a story that was meant to be positive or at least neutral came out as harsh and, uh, you know, in this terrible language of guilt and um, shame. It totally reconfirmed the whole
0: frame um, that was, you know, really harmful. Uh, and and you know, psychologically damaging, but also policy, it drove policy.
2: I really think it changed sort of the trajectory of the gay community in America, insofar as many in that community saw themselves as countercultural in terms of family life, in terms of where they fit into the structure, and that whole. The whole one of the impacts of AIDS was to normalize gayness by seeking marriage equality and by fitting in. I don't know if if those issues would have been as important to the community if the community hadn't wanted to seem normal in the mm. ideas of Americans. Uh-huh.
0: Yeah, though that was often discussed, and certainly it put it put the lives of uh, gay people more front and center. Right. Uh, and humanized it. And when you had, you know, when you had people like uh, Princess Diana, you know, going and really talking to people with AIDS and, and you know, others, uh, you know, it did it did um, bring them into uh, into the main line. But but unfortunately, into a certain right. glaring light, which, you know, even going on to, you know, nine eleven, where the first re- reaction of Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson was like, this was the reason this happened was, you know, um, <laughs> again, that we were out of favor with God. And so that we were being harmed, and you know, I want to I want to read like an amazing uh, I had not heard this, but this and this is in 1980, and, and you write in 1980 when Ronald Reagan ran for president, he vowed quote for those who have abandoned hope will restore hope, and will welcome them into a gr- great national crusade to make America great again. I I had never heard that quote and what has become. And so what Reagan was, and you do a really interesting job of kind of translating how, how Reagan and his use of the press, how it translates to Donald Trump's use of the press, and how it intersects with both of their use of faith. You know, I'm not in a position to judge, but you know, the the idea of like, Ronald Reagan or Donald Trump as paradigms of of faithful witness is really a questionable one. And yet they both managed to catch the kind of most vocal, vivid, loudest faith voice, which was um, the white Protestant evangelical voice. Um, So talk to me a little bit about how you see what happened with Reagan, with the press and his religious imaginary through the, the Obama years. I mean, we, we, we had some other steps there, but um, through the Obama years and, and into uh, what we're experiencing today with
2: um, with Donald Trump. Reagan's idea of freedom had three basic points. Democracy, free markets and and religious liberty, religious liberty being the freedom to have your religious beliefs in public which is to say, if you don't want to serve gay people, you don't have to serve gay people. So these, these I say, took the country from the more FDR tradition of communitarianism and social gospel and a liberal welfare state to more of what we call a market-driven, hyper-individualistic, um, consumer-oriented country. So that was the paradigm shift. And what I suggest is that, first of all, I believe that Ronald Reagan was a sincere Christian. I believe he did believe in a lot of what he said. I don't think he was fooling anybody. Um, I don't think reporters at the time understood that because he didn't go to church. So obviously he wasn't a real Christian. But that's really not a metric for belief and sincerity. So I believe that when Donald when Ronald Reagan cut welfare because he believed in personal responsibility, he was not only interested in the ability to cut taxes, but he also believed people on welfare should get a job because that's what God wanted them to do. Now. You could also say that what he did was to sacralize selfishness and mm. self-aggrandizement and um and hyper-individualism. I don't think Reagan would have necessarily put it in those words, but Trump did. And mm. I think Trump is sort of the you know apotheosis of all of Reagan's ideas gone rogue. Mm, <laughs> so mm. I wouldn't I wouldn't say Trump believed in freedom. I wouldn't say I mean he believes in he believes in autocracy. He believes in getting as much as he can for himself. Mm. Ironically, Trump was elected or his election was driven by white evangelicals who ever since the age of Reagan felt their social agenda had not been fulfilled and so they were angry every republican president let them down and they decided trump wouldn't and he delivered for them and that transactional relationship um basically helped him become become president i don't think trump has a religious core. i don't think he has religious convictions i think he has cynically manipulated folks who who wanted to believe their agenda was important and could impact the country. And so we have a stacked Supreme Court. We have the repeal of Roe v. Wade. We have Supreme Court cases about whether you know gay people should be served, what to do about transgender kids. I mean, all of this is the religious rights agenda coming to yeah. fruition. Yeah, if
0: I can just end this with, I want to read read your ending of the book, which I thought was so beautiful and um and sobering. These are the words of Diane Winston in her book Writing the American Dream, How the Media Mainstreamed Reagan's Evangelical Vision. The book of Proverbs tells us without a vision the people perish. But what if a vision causes the people to perish? After four decades of Reagan's vision, which animated greed and hyper individualism in ways that he may not have foreseen, we are faced with a debilitating climate change, increased economic insecurity, systemic racism and a new class of global oligarchs beholden to no one. White supremacists and Christian nationalists have emerged from the shadows and anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, and other instances of ethnic and religious prejudices are on the rise. In such circumstances, Americans need a new vision. Writing the history of that imaginary with what will be a new and, it is hoped, redeemed interplay of religion and politics will be a task for future researchers. Diane Winston, I hope you're around, actually, to to write it, and I hope that we're around to see it. So, uh, thank you. Diane Winston spent over a decade as a journalist and is now Associate Professor of Journalism and Knight Chair of Media and Religion at the University of Southern California. She is the author and or editor of several books, including Red Hot and Righteous, the Urban Religion of the Salvation Army. Her latest is titled Writing the American Dream, How the Media Mainstreamed Reagan's Evangelical Vision. And thank you so much for being with us today on The State of Belief.
2: Oh, thank you, Paul. It was so fun to talk with you.
0: And that's all the time we have for The State of Belief this week. Please be sure to subscribe to the new and improved podcast called The State of Belief at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform or at stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. Subscribe to The State of Belief today. We need your help keeping the State of Belief going. I hope you consider being a partner in this crucial work by making a financial contribution today. Information on how to donate is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. And if you're getting something out of this show, share it with your friends and family. Let's get more people listening and keep these conversations going when the show is over. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at State of Belief and share State of Belief with the people in your networks. The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect those of Religion News Service or Religion News Foundation. State of Belief is produced by Ray Kirstein and is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member today at interfaithalliance.org. And be sure to join us next week for a show with Buddhist teacher Sharon Salzberg and Hindu pundit Sushma Devedi, who will share the light and wisdom of Diwali. I can't wait. Until then, I'm Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch on The State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet.